Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I am your host, Donnie Mabe. This is the monthly show focused on building conversations around the team-based model approach to athletic performance, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, sports science, mental health and wellness, and sports nutrition. Hello and welcome back to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mabe, and hope everybody is having a great uh, winter and spring so far. We are well into 2021, and today's guest, uh, I am super excited to uh, not only introduce, but just have a great conversation uh, with him. And so first and foremost, let's welcome our guest, Coach Daniel Martinez from Trinity uh, College. Coach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Donnie. It's a real privilege to be able to do this, and I appreciate it. Happy New Year. Good stuff. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, I know you're a busy man with with all the things you got on your plate and with COVID and all that. But uh, I know just, you know, the with the podcast, we're just trying to get different guests from those five buckets of sports science, strength and conditioning, nutrition, uh, mental health and wellness and um, applied sports science. But the, the cool thing about you, Coach Martinez, that we wanted to have, we we know you're a strength and conditioning coach. But the cool part about you, the the fascinating part to me is that you are really a sports scientist too at heart. So you kind of, you blend the two together. So that was a big, um, when I talked to our, our sports scientist, Travis Volantes, your name immediately popped up. Of course, I've, I'd heard of you before, but uh, the more I've read about you and, and listened and just kind of observed you from afar, I couldn't wait to meet you and have you on the show and knew that our listeners would get a lot out of today's conversation. So with that, let's let's jump right into the show here, and we'll let you uh, we'll let you get 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 introduce yourself. Uh, before we go though, again, this is Coach Daniel Martinez. He is uh, on his fourth year as Trinity's head strength and conditioning coach and coordinator um, of the Sports Performance Center uh, this academic year. So, Coach Martinez has a wide array of experience working with multiple teams. Just some of the highlights that that are uh, that stick out to me, Coach. Um, you've obviously you're you're a director, which takes a lot of time. You work directly with volleyball. That's correct, right? Yes, sir. And I mean that's a sport I've worked with over the years, so can't wait to hear about your some of your insights on that. Um, you've done some work with the Golden State Warriors. I'm sure that was a, that was a cool experience. You learned a ton from that. Uh, one of my favorite things that uh, the coach has done. He's he's got his uh, his, his Master's degree, correct, from yes, Edith Cowan uh, University over in Australia. So you've been certified through the ASCA as well, not just the American certification process, but the Australian certification process, which if you've ever studied that is very extensive and very thorough and not an easy thing to get through. So uh, with that, I want to to welcome you to the show. And your first question, Coach, with your wide variety of experiences, including working with club volleyball teams, publishing research, consulting professional teams, can you speak to how your experiences have led you to your current position at Trinity? 
Yeah, some of it, you mentioned volleyball. Volleyball was a pretty primary piece, I think, in the puzzle for a long time. It was, I, I chose to specialize early on and because I, I, I had an affinity for the population uh, and really enjoyed the structure that club volleyball in that case uh, provided is that it gave me enough contact with the athletes to make a difference. And then I started keying in on some things that in a, in a young female athlete population is largely low-hanging fruit. But then there was a refinement to that process that I think uh, as as I became more educated and progressed in my career, started adding layers to it where really I started as just a pure coach first. And then the science piece started becoming a heavier and heavier backbone that really, I think, supports the integrity of our careers in the long term, you know, and that that can take, you know, different shapes and forms, like you said, uh, as a consultant. That was that's kind of wearing a different hat than it is in terms of leading teams on a day to day basis. Uh, I always say consulting is professional advice, basically. And if you don't attach yourself to the outcomes that are necessary, then, you know, it's really just you having an, a good chat, you know, like a, of something yeah. that is probably a, probably a shared interest, but not necessarily something that you're going to help anybody go anywhere. And that's what the whole purpose of of performance enhancement is the idea that we have targets that we want to hit and achieve and aligning things to make sure that that happens. Good stuff. What about when you, uh, when you first began at coaching at Trinity, uh, kind of what was your approach to successfully integrating sports science and were there some challenges as you kind of started to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, uh, logistically there are definitely, you know, large challenges. I'm, I'm a single staff member. So I actually, I have, I have some assistance from assistant coaches and different sports. One of our volleyball assistant has a strength conditioning background as well. She did her master's in strength conditioning, which is very helpful, but overall it's largely me coordinating the effort of, you know, in principle, 17 teams on a, on a day-to-day basis, it's probably 10 to 12 teams that we'll see in our facility on a regular basis. And then that brings constraints where for the most part, I'm grounded to the weight room. So I've got to figure out how to, what I always characterize as, as how to do more with less, you know, or, and how to do less better. And, 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 but at the same time to hold that to the standard of what we know from a measurement standpoint, uh, that, that sports science lens can help to refine that process. Uh, and, you know, like for, for me, I'd start out and I'd say, I probably fell into being very conservative and going with more just, you know, average workloads instead of applying the same process that I did as a, as a private coach prior to that, which, which I personally find to be the, the technical model that, that I more align with as a practitioner. But I think I was just a little gun shy. Uh, the analysis, however, that, 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 that we would do, I think, you know, certainly helped me to recognize some of that early on in that, you know, we were doing, you know, good quality work in the weight room, but I always tell people there's a difference between programming and work. And, and a lot of coaches just have their athletes do more work than everybody else. And if you do more work than everybody else, then you're largely going to be in a better position to be successful. But the problem is, is when you have athletes with schedules and academic demands and et cetera, like lifestyle, uh, and you cannot do more, you know, like stress is unlimited, but your recovery capacity is not. And therefore, we have to be a little bit more surgical about where we apply these interventions and and how we measure for uh, for success and for failure. Yeah, I remember you said something there about uh, the, the time. And I think I, I don't know that 
unless like yourself or myself, you're working in a weight room and you're dealing with these athletes on a day to day, just how much time crunch they have. And, and I remember seeing, hearing an analogy of like, you know, time for an, a student athlete, especially in college is like a budget, right? You've only got so much time that you can budget for certain things. And if you start trying to budget too much, the, the, the account gets overdrawn and there are some consequences and residual outcomes that kind of impact performance. So you're spot on with that one. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say attentional capacity is, is you know, multitasking, yeah. especially, I think is something that uh, there's a great book that, you know, is, is a, it's actually a project management book, but uh, is when I read it, I was like, this is a periodization book is it's called scrum how to do twice the work in half the time, which sounds like nonsense. But when you read the, the, you know, the structure of the book and the content and the way that he advises going about projects instead, it's, it's actually a very, you know, what, what, what's also, uh, synonymous with the term agile, right? Agile periodization is a term that's, that's been more recently popularized, uh, by Milan Jovanovic and other, other people. Uh, and it, but it's, 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 it's really just an effort not to reinvent the wheel, but to just look at ways that we can, you know, add efficiency to the process. Yeah, that's good stuff. Coach, I'm curious though, like, so you, you talk about your, your, your sports science, you're the, you're the head string coach too. Um, collecting, you know, different data and just monitoring athletes kind of as you're, you started doing that, I'm sure now you've got more buy-in, but like when you first started, how did you kind of approach that with some of your sport coaches and kind of how did you navigate that and work through some of that? What were some of the things you did then? Yeah, it's interesting. The, uh, the relationship I have that probably drove things early on, including me, you know, having an opportunity to, to take the role was I, I've been working with the volleyball program there as a consultant prior to my hiring as a, uh, a full-time staff member uh, since 2008. And our volleyball programs worked to be, you know, very successful. Like we were, we were third place in in the last year in nationals, losing to the eventual national champion Johns Hopkins in the in the semifinal match, uh, and taking a set off of them, which I think only one other team had done all all year, and ended up being the same case in the in the championship final. But um, so we've worked with that process. Our head coach there, she really gives me a tremendous platform to be successful, and I think that that you know, it helps, you know, the alignment of what we do, uh, you know, like it's, it's, it's invaluable. Um, but I'd say, you know, like I, I always use, I use this story, I've used it before, but I tell people I, I taught, I had a, a young man that I coached and his dad was telling me he was a basketball player. Right. And he told me this and it was gold. He said, uh, Daniel, every parent is the same. They want the four best kids on the basketball court and their kid. So right. I always tell people like there's this personal effect to like, for instance, like with when I, I take the role as head strength condition coach, like, hey, it's great. You you guys have had success with volleyball, et cetera, et cetera. But this is about this team, you know, my team and what we're trying to do. And you got to find a way to be receptive to that. So one of the things around feedback, especially, I think that gets lost in our field, there's a a quote from the book sense making that, that I took, that took to heart that said, it's not about having the right words. It's about having the right attitude. And if you approach it that way, it really reduces the borders that people feel around this. There, there's a, a practitioner. I know we both know Ernie Reimer at university of Utah. Ernie, yeah. yeah. Who uh, it's, it, it, the, the term is actually called transdisciplinary, meaning it's beyond boundaries and Ernie and I like you talk about someone who would who just you know have your hair on fire from from the thought process 
we were having a beer at the old Seattle Sounders uh, sports science event. And he's, you know, he's like doing blueprints on the table as we're talking and, you know, doing, you know, three or four different things at once. And he explained transdiscipline, the transdisciplinary process in, in such a clear, uh, lucid way that it, it, it really just, you know, like told me like, that's exactly what I want to achieve. And he basically said, you know, the transdisciplinary process is you go into a room together and you work towards these solutions, but everybody understands the language and what you're trying to achieve. And therefore everybody is bought into the process, right? Where I think sometimes where we make mistakes is, is we have our agendas and we have things that we feel like are going to move, you know, things in the direction that they're going. But if we don't do a good job of providing clarity around how we're going to go about doing those things, then like nobody has a reason to, to be on our team as it were, you know, and, uh, and that's going to get in the way with, of get in the way of performance. That's good stuff. I think, uh, you know, hearing you speak, it, it definitely sounds like you've got a, just a, a great grasp of not only just how, how to, um, integrate things but i think i hear you sell it uh, saying there too you got to be a kind of a good salesman too a little bit right would you say absolutely yeah so uh one of my favorite books was actually a recommendation from uh from todd wright when i did his train for the game mentorship when he was at texas uh, and i think the, it was the only book recommendation that i remember this was in 2010 so this is from yeah. memory but at the end of the mentorship myself and a few others are asking for you know resources etc things to continue study on and the only book recommendation that todd made was the greatest salesman in the world by og mendino uh, and it's, it is, it's, you know, like when, when a lot of people hear the term sales, like I think that they, they, you know, it gets misrepresented because somebody is selling you something that you're not sure you want to buy, but that exists in every aspect of relationships and interactions is, is whether people are buying, you know, what you're selling. And, uh, and it's, it is, it's important that we learn to be, you know, not only very structural with the science side of things, but also that we become compelling storytellers that help people understand, you know, cohesiveness and connection are actually absolutely central to what, what we do as practitioners, whatever role you're in. Yeah. So coach, I'm definitely picking up on, you're a big reader. So man, that's, I love that uh, to hear that about you, that you've uh, already got, you got me wanting to go look at Amazon. <laughs> I want to get off this podcast and go look at Amazon uh, and start looking at these books that you've been recommending. But another book I, I, I got for you, Coach, too, on, on sales is called uh, To Sell as Human by Dan Pink. I don't know if you've ever read that one, but okay. it's a, it's basically, you know, you just, you just gave the, the thesis in a nutshell that we're really all in sales today. We're not, you know, your traditional kind of, negative perspective or view or stereotype of a salesman was like a door-to-door -door briefcase pamphlet suit knocking on doors and today that's just not that's really not the correct sure. uh, image of a salesman because there's so much technology there's so many ways to track and, and monitor and measure things in sport that you've got to be able to not only to do that but to analyze it and break it down in small tidbits and be able to sell that to your coaches and your trainers in such a way that they'll listen and be open to making those suggestions you have. So that's a phenomenal point, coach. Um, to bridge off that, have you ever had, is there ever been a time where maybe, you, you know, with a trainer or somebody with, with uh, trying to integrate somebody really just, you had a hard, tough time getting them to buy in and kind of, how'd you 
how'd you kind of work with somebody like that? Because I think I think we 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 experience that more than ever uh, sometimes, especially. Uh, I know there'll be a day, Coach Martinez, where we won't have the skepticism on right. this because it's still kind of pioneering here in the U.S. But like, how would you advise that somebody's really struggling to get a trainer or a, a nutritionist or somebody to buy in? How would you handle that? Yeah, I always tell people, you know, uh, good coaching is you tell someone, and I'll, I'll share uh, an, another story in a, in a second from that, but good coaching is you tell someone exactly what you need to be done, how to go about doing it, you know, why it's important, et cetera. You tell them to do that and they change nothing about their performance or their like what they're doing. What you do next to me is what defines you as a coach. Because if you accept that standard, that's your new standard. And that's going to bring down the level of, of everyone in that environment. But if you, if you step up to the plate and challenge in that case, I always tell people, uh, people who think you're weak will offer you an excuse. People who think you can be strong will offer you a challenge. Right. And like, and so we should be grateful for people willing to challenge us in a, in a positive way and understand that that's, that's the essence of competition. The word competition actually comes from Latin from competere, which means to, to, to strive together. Right. So like by me being willing to strive for the best, that's the only way that I'm going to be able to have that positive effect on, you know, whatever, however complicated the issue actually is. And then it just comes back to attitude of, of um, I would say that uh, probably both equal measure of courage and compassion of being willing to, to meet people where they are and, 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 you know, help them understand, you know, like that, I, I think that aspect of vulnerability doesn't get, as much uh, bandwidth yeah. in, in athlete populations, especially student athlete populations, because, and, and, it, and, you know, Brene Brown has her, her vulnerability prayer, which is allow myself to have the courage to show up and let myself be seen, you know, mm-hmm. and that, and that's something that I think the courage to do that and then have somebody stand in front of you. So for me as a coach, for someone to show up doing that, and then for me not to be willing to find compassion in, in my attitude about where they're at and just, you know, come, maybe come from a place of judgment, et cetera. I think that's what builds the skepticism and the cynicism and in, in people, you know, buying into the process. Uh, and that's a huge issue for, for all of us, you know, and I think we've all worked probably with people who that approach tends to, to polarize and, you know, maybe they're successful for a specific reason in using that, but we can see how that creates barriers sometimes to people, you know, being willing to embrace the challenge of growth. No, that's powerful. I hear you saying too, as you're, as you're talking, I, I'm a very visual person, but as I hear you, I'm like, I see this, like this education and knowledge piece that you've got to, you've got to build uh, with experiences and with reading and, and taking classes and getting credibility and knowing kind of what you're doing, but I also see this other bucket over here that's just as important where it's communication. It's, it's, it's being compassionate and having those soft skills that I think, you know, have kind of taken a back seat in coaching. It obviously it's coming to the forefront more today, but I mean, both are equally, you know, you, you want to have, sometimes I guess it's, it's bad if you got somebody who's really good at communicating and having all that, but you don't really know what they're doing. Right. right. But it's just as bad if you know what you're doing, but you kind of come off arrogant or you can't connect with somebody. You can't get, you can't listen really well to what they're saying or filter through what they're trying to explain to you and read people's body language. So right. I think that there's a piece there that there's a connection because I always like to say too, 
people buy into you as the person first before they buy into your program. So you got to be able to communicate and sell who you are as a person, your core values before you can have the greatest widget in the world, but nobody may want it if you don't have that skill set too. So, so big, big time stuff. Absolutely. So if, if you don't mind, if I, if I yeah, share, go for it. I, I'm pretty sure you mentioned the warriors in the intro, but that may have been before we jumped on, on the podcast itself, but either way, I don't want to, I don't want to feel like I'm name dropping, but this is a story I think that perfectly demonstrates the salesmanship, but also the compassion element and what I felt like made me successful in the consultancy role that I had before. Uh, so when I showed up, it was basically, you know, a service call, if you will, where, you know, I, I was in the Bay area to meet with teams that were integrating the force deck software and technology and uh, the golden state warriors were on the list, right? Like one of, uh, you know, a few high profile programs in the area that, that we were working with at the time. Mm -hmm. And when I showed up to golden state, like it's first, it's this kind of bat cave facility, not the, the not the new facility, which is apparently amazing, but the, their old facility was in Oakland and it was in this hotel and this like fifth floor kind of deal. It was really interesting. But, uh, I showed up there and I had a colleague who, uh, Drew Cooper, who actually came along with me and I was training him to replace me. Cause that was when I was on my way out of force decks. But, um, I showed up and, and they were honestly, they were kind of skeptical. They were, they, they were at that point in time, they were not using it on a regular basis. Yeah. And so I had to take that and they're saying, yeah, you know, uh, and it was, it was really kind of a closed off, you know, uh, dialogue with them with saying, yeah, you know, we don't know when to do it, how to do it. We don't even know, you know, like I said, you know, you got it in the closet right now. So I was like, well, you know, can we pull it out? So we pull it out. And I said, can I show you guys a couple of things? And so I went into a coaching deal for about 30 minutes showing them like how I would work on jumping patterns and how I would, how I would, you know, like look at the relationship on that, on the force plate and recognize limiting factors. So I go for about 30 minutes of going hard on my coaching mode. And then uh, I was like, so is, is that helpful at all? And they were like, what else do you got? And then we probably went for another 30 or 45 minutes. And at the end, they were, they were very grateful, you know, and then uh, that ended up, that was one of the years they won a championship. And when they won a championship, this was a total class move. They sent me a gift package with like gear and with a nice note. And the note that they shared meant so much to me because that's, that's what my goal was as a practitioner was they said, you helped us understand how to see the force plate with our eyes in what we were doing as coaches and helped us understand better, you know, how, how those things work together. And so that was, you know, like I said, total class move on, on their part. And uh, I'm grateful for experiences like that, that, that can help me articulate that, you know, that, that certainly did. I, I want to say when I started at Trinity, it wasn't long before golden state was in town. And within the first couple of months, of me taking the job at Trinity and having the Golden State Warriors show up and they kind of did a follow-up with me and I went over a few more things and talked to them about what they had been trying to do recently. To to have that opportunity to to have that happen at our our you know small liberal arts school was like pretty eye-opening for uh for our student athletes and, and some of our coaches. Coach, that, that's a big time story. I was like, I could even just envision, you know, because I mean I've been in those situations and seen it where Man, when somebody's got their walls up, I mean, you just you sometimes you don't want to get through. But uh, the, the fact that I, I would imagine too, just the level of passion that you communicate with, and the the level of detail you probably went into it, just they go, wait, wait a minute, now this guy's got something to say. So, coach, that's a big time story. That that's very uh, applicable. So, thanks for sharing that. 
No, absolutely. It's, it was uh, it was a great experience. I really, you know, I I, I count on that because of course there was a little bit of a closed off piece, but you could see that if I can get through that barrier with them, yeah. that they're actually very receptive and open learners. Mike Mike Err, who's now with the Hawks, was uh, was their lead at the time, and uh, he was a Bill Hartman protege. He's one of those that went, you know, PT uh, physical therapist as well as a strength conditioning coach, and kind of went through Bill Hartman at IFAST uh, in his internship and and. And Bill was a tremendous influence. So one of the best compliments he paid me as well is saying that a lot of what I was saying reminded him of what Bill was communicating to him all the time about emergent pathways and et cetera. That's good stuff. I um, appreciate it. Kind of want to shift gears just a little bit. Um, let's let's kind of go down ground level with you now on this next question. Uh, this one's one of my favorites and uh, just super impressed and, and just – in all of like how many teams and sports you have and how you balance all this. So how do you balance coach? How do you balance the aim for an individualized data-driven approach with practicality that is training a couple of hundred athletes across multiple sports? So how would, how do you do that coach? That's, that's amazing to me. I think it's number one is being organized, you know, like having, having something where you can line things up and, um, and execute, you know, and then recognize and be willing to modify and adjust. Like I said, the compassion piece is it's, it's real on, uh, on, on, for, for ourselves as practitioners as well. So I think I probably, like, like I said, is, is I think that led to my initial approach of being a little bit more moderate and how we distributed workloads across and, you know, looking like just kind of standard strength and conditioning. And since then, you know, and, and not coincidentally probably linked with COVID a little bit, um, especially in recent history, like we, we really adjusted workloads based on the monitoring data to be able to, you know, do what we felt like would optimize adaptation for our student athlete population. You know, like we're, we're an NCAA division three program. So uh, obviously the lowest competitive level versus division one and division two, but, you know, we still have kids who can achieve and who can excel and, and, and having seen, had that chance to see monitoring data across you know, divisions, et cetera. We have kids who can compete, you know, like largely one of the big differences would be anthropometrics, uh, their actual build, right? Like where our our jumping athletes in volleyball, for instance, like I've seen, you know, some of the top uh, collegiate volleyball programs where our jump monitoring is actually really comparable and in some cases actually better. The problem is, is that our kids max out at 5'11", 6 feet, maybe 6'1". Yeah. And it doesn't even start till six one when you go to the division one. So when you have someone who's doing that same jump, but they've got an increased capacity based on their height, then that's something that optimizes that environment for the organism, right? So we basically deal with student athletes who are probably a pretty good athlete. And that's that's our experience. We have a competitive program, but structurally don't check all those boxes in terms of size, build, and maybe athleticism. And that's going to point to a process that we have to find a way to isolate those key factors and, and, and identify them as differentiators and then align a process that helps us to attack those things, right? And to get them to understand that, you know, like I said, with the work example, I use that example all the time. I was like, you can come in here and just do work, just put your head down and get to it. And I was like, or we could really work at refining like how you move and how you perceive your performance and training environment, you know, like to where, you know, like 
the, the the competition thing has to come through is that they've got to really approach it as the, as their best opportunity to get better in the moment. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, what about force plate testing? Can you talk about what it, what it is you're looking at with force plate testing? And then how does that information you see influence the training processes? Yeah, the force plate is is a tremendous piece because you're really getting into, I always call it Bruce Lee. If you're familiar with Bruce Lee, I always call it the one inch punch of sports science is force plate testing because it's about doing more with less, which I mentioned before. And really, when you think about it, you're like, okay, a Bruce Lee's one inch punch is truly impressive to knock a man back from a standstill. But when you give him a couple of steps to build up to it, he could absolutely demolish people like bigger, much bigger people than, than Bruce Lee. Um, and I think that's what our, competi- our competition environment actually offers, right? Like we know that the outputs that are achieved, especially the higher the level that you go, like what they'll jump in a competition match versus what they'll do in a training session is different, right? And there's times where we see that, where when, when the athletes we actually put on the force plate you can tell, I always say like it's a zoo tiger, jungle tiger relationship, right? Where the zoo is like for show and the jungle is for survival, right? Uh, and so the relationship is, is if, if, if they're on the field and they're a savage and that's the way they compete and then they come in the weight room and they're doing this, you know, the, the hygiene approach to how we, we standardize testing, you know, hands on hips, et cetera, like these protocols that we have to give us a little bit more clarity and consistency. And then all of a sudden they move differently. Well, that to me, that's a problem. That's one of the things that, that I, identi- I identified early as a consultant that would interfere with sports scientists and strength conditioning coaches seeing that they were getting the outputs that they believed their athletes were capable of. Number one, being like, why does this force plate data not match up with what I feel like this athlete can really do? But then secondarily, being able to identify like, you know, what are our steps in the process to be able to do that? And that's where, again, a force plate, like in, uh, in force tech software, as well as in, in all of the, the, the major software providers, uh, uh, with force plates now would, would be able to do is, is to be able to identify the eccentric and concentric phases mm-hmm. and what, that actually consists of right which i always tell people force time curves start out looking like matrix code you're just like see these squiggly lines and you know i don't really know what that means but you could given a little bit of focus like we can learn to translate that and find out how to enhance uh specific aspects so i i start out almost always my, my hygiene factor is jump height for i would say for 90 percent of 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 our testing and then we use on a counter movement jump test, which is the standing in place vertical jump on the counter movement ju- jump test. We use RSI mod as, as one of our key metrics, which is reactive strength index modified. And people always ask, what's the modified part? It's like, well, because on the, on an RSI, it's meant to be from a drop jump, right? So you touch the ground, jump as high as you can. The, the RSI mod measures from the start of your movement. So from your standstill mm-hmm. to your takeoff velocity, and so it's basically, you know, I always say it's, it's how high, how fast, right? It's meters per second. So meters, how high, seconds, how fast. So how high, how fast. But I also call it velocity with teeth because that's all meters per second is, is velocity. So that's a criticism of RSI mod as a metric. They're like, well, you already have your takeoff velocity. You're like, yeah, but that's in the concentric phase specifically. This is from the start of their movement to the end, which the time factor could be your primary factor in a specific athlete population. 
And so you're going to see that bias uh, and where other athletes, concentric athletes, especially who have that bias towards the concentric phase will have that big takeoff velocity, uh, biggest velocities that you'll see biggest jump heights, but the eccentric phase might underperform relative to what we feel, what we, what we understand could actually provide further enhancement to their performance. And so uh, being able to take that apart and look at those eccentric characteristics and then look at the concentric, the out, kind of the outputs and, and, and study the strategy of what occurs in these movements, you know, like that's, it's, it's, it's invaluable is, is what it is. Um, and it tells you, it tells you pretty quickly, you know, what kind of ceiling an athlete's working, you know, like for instance, like one of the things I would say is you have a good athlete who puts out a very average jump, right? Like one of the NBA teams that I was involved in testing, they had, uh, their sixth best jumper on their roster was in the NBA's dunk contest the, the year before. So I remember looking at it and being like, this is, this is nonsense. This guy's one of the best jumpers in the world. Right. But that goes back to the zoo tiger, jungle tiger thing, where it's like, he, he's, he's like on the court, he's a savage. He understands that. I said, but in the weight room, the, the underlying factor was tendinopathy, right? Like he's got knee pain all the time. So all of a sudden he's in the weight room, the environment is different and this becomes more threatening to him now. And so he, he undermines like what would be a, a true, you know, what I would count as an authentic counter jump effort. Uh, and biases towards these limited knee angles that just don't don't allow us to to optimize force production uh, when especially when you're when you're you're basically glued to the floor right when your feet are in place. I realize that's kind of a mouthful at this point where I'm at, but um, it puts some important constraints on it, right? And so uh, in that case, the dialogue was you know like well you've got to you've got to find a way to get to the technical side with them. And, and some of that becomes the, the load absorption phase, the eccentric phase yeah. is teaching them how to achieve specific positions that are not always necessary to every athlete. Some athletes are going to be more successful with, with more limited of, a, of the counter movement. And some athletes really have to bury it to be able to jump higher and faster. Uh, but whenever you need to make a change there to try to find more, that that might be the process that we point to, and that was what we did with uh, with that athlete specifically. It's good stuff. Um, so going, still talking about the force decks, uh, the force plates. I'm sorry. Um, how do you explain the value of like a force plate or force deck to a population, like a, a sport like swimming, where the the test isn't as easily comparable to the demands of the sport, like a like a volleyball? How would you? How would you do that, coach? Yeah, I always break it down. Stephen Plisk is someone who, who's on, on the scientific side. I think his lens into the training process is, is probably the, the one that offers me the most, the most clarity. And he always breaks it down as there's mechanics, there's energetics, and then there's the coordination of those efforts. So that, that's your triangle, right? And he had a series of blog posts called Triangulating on a Target in uh, maybe early, mid-2000s. But uh Stephen Pliss, the energetics, mechanics, and coordination, that's basically what you're looking at. Well, on, on, the, on the force plate side of things, you're largely looking at the mechanics piece, right? Unless you've got some conditioning test that you might be able to do. Matt Jordan has one that's uh, a jump test that you do, continuous jumps, like a jump every four seconds for a minute, I think is what it is. But I, I've, I've never applied that intervention. But most of the time we're dealing 
primarily with the mechanics piece, right? The problem with the force plate is that you don't have kinematics, you don't have their motion. So you're making some assumptions on what they're doing, you know, from joint to joint and, and how that contributes to their performance. Um, but there are certainly, I think, I think uh, we would recognize that there are, there are strategic differences in athletes, especially specific to, to certain sports that can put a real ceiling on what they're able to do as well as increase their potential for, for tendon issues and for injury issues and negatively uh, impact uh, resilience and their overall readiness. That makes sense. Uh, just let's listen to you. The, the visual I get, I saw like you see a, like a, whether it's a basketball or a um, volleyball player or court sport that, I mean, they're really efficient at jumping. They've been jumping for 10, 12 years versus like a swimmer who, you know, they'll get both the athletes on the force plate, right? But like you said, the kinematics, like that swimmer, who knows what they could round their back, you know, not even bend their hips, you know, when they jump. And so, like you said, it's just, you can make those assumptions. It really, it's really kind of missing on the, how you're just looking at the analysis of that data, I would imagine. So. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I, I think especially with swimming, which I kind of neglected to, 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 to isolate that one, but I think I use more of a global example, but with, with swimming, it is interesting because I think that there are these huge positives and negatives to, to how those things relate. Right. And it's, it's, it's where, you know, when, when, when I talk about things and, you know, like I, I don't want them to perceive them as being different things, but ultimately our, our technique and how we achieve those things, like I'm not enabling all of those postures that they use in their swimming in the weight room. Right. Like I, I have a technical model that I work from that I think covers squatting and hinging proficiency in how we load the lower body and how we maintain integrity of the spine. Like, and, and that's, that's pretty well, uh, well defined for me in the, in the work that I've done. Uh, but then seeing how that interacts where, you know, there are going to be people who are just, they're, they're never going to put it fully together on the force plate. But if you're trying to put the whole piece together mm -hmm. by looking at a force plate, with a swimmer that, that, I mean, that's an issue in itself, which is never something that I would try to communicate that we're trying to do. It's, it's merely feedback on their dry land training, which is a huge percentage of what they, cause they can't do everything in the pool. I know yeah. swim coaches try, but <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Coach kind of a, a question to kind of tie in some of that. So put on your strength coach hat for a moment. You got your sports science, you got your data, you've done some testing how would you practically take some of what you, the, the data you've collected on a different athlete, let's say like compare like a soccer player versus so like a court, or excuse me, like a field athlete, like lacrosse or soccer or a football versus like a court sport. Mm -hmm. How would you change? What would that look like in the weight room on how you would change, whether it be exercise selection, uh, maybe speak to one on, you maybe you want to change some adaptation qualities and try to enhance different uh, um, ways they move or whatever. Is it more explosive, or more endurance with the right. with the with the field sport, or, or how would you address fatigue? Maybe those some of those kind of uh, different areas. How would you do that in the weight room, coach? Yeah. So if, if like we can use a court sport example because that one comes with with certain characteristics, right? When when they're on a court, it tends to have an elevated something 
is elevated about the competition, right? In volleyball, it's a net. In basketball, it's the hoop, right? That immediately is going to shift attentional focus to being up, right? So I always tell people jumping athletes don't land, they fall. And if the ground wasn't there, they'd just keep on falling. So their right. landings are not landings. They're actually, they're just collapsing into the ground. And if you do that often enough, you have the recipe for injury, right? So one of the things about that is we have the ability in our strength conditioning practice to optimize how they land and flex, right? Which most of us would start with something like a box jump and landing in their perfect position, right? And that's, that's the starting point, what I call the hygiene factor. But the real differentiator is going to be, you know, how do they handle length and rotation, right? Like, can they rotate and land? Can they do it on one leg? Can they do it with more velocity, right? That's one of the things that a movement like snap downs, I think, brings us to is that it gives us a narrow window that we can look at, you know, how quickly they can go from, from up to down, but also the idea that they're actually, because they can do that in such a short time period, what I, what I always tell our athletes, like, for instance, if you just jump 30 inches on the volleyball court, but your attention capacity is up, well, you're going to have a more narrow window to be able to provide uh, and optimize landing mechanics, right? So for for me, that lens becomes, it's kind of the example that I've used is is like a plane landing on a long runway, like let's say a big commercial jet just coming, it's got plenty of runway compared to a jet on an aircraft carrier, right? Where like a jet's coming in, it's a short runway and they've got to nail it coming in. There's not a lot of margin for error. And that's exactly what jumping in competition is. Well, because they're going to land in what I would call like, there's, there's like kind of the stiff landing, which is more closer to the, to the, to the impact, you know, just kind of just hitting the ground, uh, falling, if you will. And then there's the there's the deceleration or the braking landing where they're actually able to flex their body and use multiple joints to be able to reduce that load across their whole system. So between those two things is where your opportunity is, you know. So like I said, is is I think all of us understand that you have to start with optimizing, but you've got to move quickly into like, okay, how do I get this to be more relevant at the actual angles that are associated with their sport so that's kind of the general and specific relationship and with court athletes we see that i mentioned tendinopathy before that's a that's a huge issue in the nba it's it's uh and of course it's going to be if it affects them it's going to affect everybody developmentally especially your you know your taller longer kids um and a lot of them they, they they don't have the ability to flex well and that and that's that's not just something that negatively negatively impacts their their uh they're lifting. It also has the potential to negatively impact their jump performance where how they find stability. You know, one of, one of my, my great colleagues in, uh, it's in the NBA right now, Chris Chase at uh, Memphis Grizzlies. He, he always said, he said with their guys understanding the jump and the strategic differences, he said, the way they move around the court is like, they're just trying to stop from falling all the time. You know, so even moving around the court like that is just, it's just this constant threat condition, right? Where teaching them how to actually use, you know, stability to drive mobility in the appropriate ways could actually take a lot of effort, right? Now, I love, I love that uh, your analogies and just even the practicality of, you know, like the core sport. I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, for years, 
when I was working with, with core sports, uh, especially volleyball, everybody wanted to know how high you could jump. Mm-hmm. And then the more I started working with them, like, I'm not worried about how high they jump. I'm wondering about how they land. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's where the danger is where you could lose somebody. So that's a, that's a great insight. So thank you for sharing that coach. Yeah, um, no, ab- absolutely. I, pr- I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, I have a couple questions left here as we kind of wrap up the show, but uh, just some, some uh, fun ones here, coach. Why, what is your, why, why do you do what you do? Because you're obviously, you're very, man, you're very knowledgeable. You, you just come off. You're a great guy. I would imagine that the kids and athletes and coaches are drawn to you, but like, why do you do what you do coach? What is it? You know, uh, it's kind of a, it's actually kind of a, a personal thing and, and challenging. I actually, ha- I had a job opportunity with, I'll just say a, 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 a big time college program, you know, a few years back. And, uh, that was kind of like what it came down to in my, and, and what I honestly believe led to me receiving the offer that I did, uh, was he asked, he said, Hey, at your core, Daniel Martinez, who is he and why? And I basically said, you know, like I have a, a complicated relationship with my dad. Uh, I always tell people my dad was, uh, if you, if you remember the movie full metal jacket, love that movie. Yeah. So my dad, so I always tell people my dad would have been that, that drill sergeant's boss. Yeah, yeah. So my, my dad was the series chief drill instructor at Paris Island. And so I grew up in a Marine Corps household, right? And my dad took his job really seriously and was very passionate. Uh, he was in Desert Storm and in the war. Um, and because of that, that brought some negative effects, right? Like he had some coping issues on the back end of that. And so it really, it was at a, a, a uh, a pivotal point in my life because it was at the point where I was becoming a young man and I, I really lacked a role model in that way due to the conflicts and the things that he had to work through uh, as an individual. And so I, I, that, that wasn't my experience of, uh, e- even though he was that kind of influential person with his work, I didn't get to experience that as his son. Uh, and that's kind of what drives me as a, as a father now Yeah, is, is to provide that consistency is to make sure that I approach things. I just, I wouldn't want to be embarrassed. That's probably central to it is just like, I, I want to take pride in what we do and, you know, us being division three, it's pretty easy for people just to, you know, kind of, you know, write us off as it were and think like, well, you know, like the athletes there, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, if you can't, if you can't show up and make a difference where we are, I don't know if you have, if you really have the ability to do that anywhere else. So, um, like, like that's something that I feel really positively about. I take a lot of pride in the fact that like our student athletes do work hard the way that they do. Uh, and I think, you know, that, that willingness to, to commit to that with them, I think is, is, is what helps to, to keep me passionate about it. Yeah, that's good. That's a great story about your dad. And, um, I never had any parents that were, my mom was uh, in the army, but she was never in a war like that. So I can't imagine, uh, having a dad that had to go through that. So we appreciate your, your dad's service, but thank you for being open and sharing that. I know, uh, I know I had some, some early on, uh, growing up as a young, young uh, son, my family was a, a broken family very early on. And that's definitely a big part of who we are. Sometimes, sometimes our biggest pains become the promises that we are, that kind of drives us to be who we are. And I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm like you, I kind of see the positives in it, you know, 
to try to to try to be that person in the future. So I appreciate you sharing it. I, I I agree with you. I think that there's a gratitude that comes with the opportunity to have that relationship, and you get to be that person in that case. You know, like where you, what you experienced was, you know, like you said, broken and you know dysfunctional potentially. Uh, but where it took you and, and, and where you chose to go with that, right? Like it's, it's, uh, I've had people, you know, personally be like, well, you, you know, you could have just as easily gone the other direction. And in my head, that was just, there was no way, there was no possibility that I, I would have, I would have been, you know, like uh, my dad largely, I would say ruled like with an iron fist, right. As you yeah. would expect, uh, where for me, like when I talk about, you know, compassion and when I talk about, you know, connection and things like that, like that's, that's probably the thing that I come, that has to come first. And that affects, you know, my, my, my multiple roles as an influencer uh, with my kids, especially. And so it, it's taught me patience, a lot of patience to be able to like, I, I know I can get the result that I need from the discipline side with my kids but what I don't know is, 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 or what I don't want to know is what the cost of that is, right? Like, and I want, to, what I want to do is reduce the cost while teaching my kids to be disciplined and to be passionate and to, and to be, you know, joyful kids. Powerful stuff, coach. We appreciate it. I got a, one more fun question. I saw you're a, a big Rocky. You like the movie Rocky and I'm, man, I'm a big Rocky movie and can watch, I still, when they come on, I'll just watch them. What's what's your favorite Rocky? Which one? No, it's not even a question. It's it, they're all great, but yeah. Rocky Four is is Rocky Four is number one for me. Yeah, right? like yeah, <laughs> it's a hundred percent like it's the pinnacle. Right, absolutely. What, what's what's your favorite part about that one, Coach? What is it? I love that he has to he has to leave. It's kind of like it, it really is. It's probably you know the hero's journey is a Joseph yeah. Campbell thing, but it's it's a hero's journey. He has to go away from home and he has to go into this dark place and fight this like monstrous being, um, and he has to do that knowing that this monster has destroyed before, right? Like yeah. w- one of my favorite you just kind of uh, play off of that. One of my favorite poems is, or not poem, it's uh, from a speech from Teddy Roosevelt is Man in the Arena. But what I tell people a lot is like, sometimes the man in the arena dies there, you know, like, so it's, it's not all fun, you know, like Apollo died, you know, like, and so those (laughs) those are, that's right. Those are, yeah, some real costs to this. That's, That's awesome. That's good stuff. Well, cool. Any any uh, resources you got for the listeners today? Myself, any books, any courses, pie, anything comes to mind? What would you recommend for us, Coach? Yeah, I mentioned Matt Jordan before. Matt Jordan's, uh, his his kind of uh, Jordan strength process that he has. It's, it's not a certification, I don't think, I don't believe so. But uh, the modules that he provides are, you know, they're very scientifically rigorous. That's something I, I truly appreciate about Matt and being someone who's done some research to understand the detail that you need to have as a practitioner to be able to be that surgical, that sniper. Um, I have a ton of respect for Matt as a practitioner. Doc Sof is someone who through Edith Cowan's program, like who became a mentor and, and tremendous friend, like somebody who I just, you know, like, uh, I'd go to battle with any day and, uh, but is a tremendous, uh, with respect, something that I didn't speak much on, but with agility, change of direction, uh, with those characteristics, like somebody who, you know, has really taken that apart and put it all back together again in a way that makes us all better and what we are able to achieve better. 
Uh, I would say Doc Sof's material is 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 top notch. Jeremy Shepard is someone who his PhD work through I believe it was Edith Cowan uh, was volleyball specific largely, and through the Australian Institute of Sport dealing with an elite athlete population. And that was kind of the thing that, you know, I think initially ignited a passion for me, especially with volleyball, but beyond that and and meeting and spending time with and and being able to count uh, uh, Jer as a, as a mentor now is like, it's, it's more meaningful now than it's ever been is to be able to say that, like, I have so much respect for who he is as a man and father and the way that he approaches his work. That's, you know, I'm really just trying to model, you know, those people largely. Well, Coach, yeah, thanks for sharing. I've personally met Doc so briefly, and then Coach uh, Jeremy Shepard. I've had the the privilege of just visiting with him as well. So, yeah, two uh, two outstanding individuals, and the other one was Matt Jordan. You said, yes, sir. I'll definitely be looking him up. So, thank you for sharing that those resources, Coach. Uh, we're kind of at the end of the show. Is there our listeners want to reach out, connect with you, kind of read more about you, learn from you? What's the best way to connect with you, Coach Martinez? I'm, I'm one of those. I'm, I'm not on Facebook. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, it's different for each one with Twitter. It's at Entheos Athletic. Entheos is E-N-T-H-E-O-S Athletic. And my, uh, my Twitter handle, I'm sorry, my Instagram handle is Daniel Martinez, M-S-C-S-C-S, kind of the standard uh, strength coach language that all of my student athletes are like, they don't understand what, what the, what <laughs> yeah, the, mi- mi- what's, who's the miss C-S-C-S, what's yeah. that mean? <laughs> Yeah, but uh, th- th- those are the handles with with those respective platforms. Besides that, I'm pretty accessible. You can find my information on the Trinity University Athletics website, and I'm 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 accessible. Uh, certainly not someone who's who's trying to keep any secrets from anybody. I, I find that if someone wants to get better, there's nothing you can do to stop them. So hopefully, they can help you as well. Yeah. And if someone doesn't want to get better, then you know, like helping them in offering out, you know, whatever nuggets or advice that you might offer is uh, it, it, it doesn't cost you anything for that. Well, coach, we appreciate uh, not just your time, but your expertise and more anything, the passion and uh, uh, that you bring to this profession. Um, it's guys like you that definitely make us all better. So we appreciate the work you're doing and Trinity, you might be a Trinity at smaller school, but coach, you're a, that's a big time place. You've made it the big time. So kudos to you and keep changing lives and impacting people. I know I, uh, I'm, I'm very thankful we were able to connect today. So thank you, coach. It's been an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for the opportunity, Donnie. Like I have a ton of respect for, for, for you and for the program you guys have at Texas and the work that you're doing with, you know, Travis Blantes, who's a, who's a, a tremendous practitioner and a friend. Uh, you got to love a, a sports scientist whose Twitter handle is platform warrior, you know, like that's uh, yeah. going to the weightlifting. Right. Like, I, I love that. <laughs> we that hard too. Yeah. We have that yeah. shared piece in our, in our background as well. But uh, yeah, like I, I, I appreciate what you guys do and, and what it does for our field and, and the, how you're using your platform here with the podcast. So I'm, I'm grateful to be a guest. Good stuff. Well, coach, we appreciate it. Well, that's it on the team behind the team podcast and coach Martinez, coach Daniel Martinez is the man. He is definitely a rock star. Uh, coach, you, if people don't know about you, they will soon. So just keep doing your thing. Keep, keep going big, make your dent in the universe. We know you will. We appreciate you. That's it. We, we hope everybody has a great, great month and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side next episode. Take care. 
thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Team Behind the Team podcast. For future episodes, go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We definitely want to keep having great guests on the show and great content. So if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let us know how we're doing. I'm Donnie Mabe, and thanks so much for tuning in.